Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambo, welcoming you to the December 26th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests include Shahir Masri, an environmental scientist who identifies as a Lebanese-American who's speaking today about the human public health catastrophe in Gaza. In the second segment, cellist extraordinaire Matt Heimovitz will speak about the possibilities and power of his musical instrument, especially in times like these. Let's start the show now. My guest in this segment, which is a bookend to a recent program on La Posada, Palestinians' public health in the most urgent of circumstances. Palestinians, Muslim and Christian, are getting the full brunt of a deeply pernicious proxy war. Taking this up is my first guest, Shahir Masri. Shahir, who's been on many times Ask a Leader, he is an associate specialist in air pollution exposure assessment and epidemiology at UCI, where he works on air pollution exposure modeling as well as climate change communication research. He's also an adjunct faculty member at National University where he teaches online graduate and undergraduate science courses. Shahir founded a project called On the Road for Climate Action, which is an effort to raise awareness about climate change by organizing educational climate events and giving public presentations across all 50 states. Shahir's written work includes the book Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change, as well as over a dozen peer-reviewed scientific studies that have been published in well-known academic journals and numerous opinion articles, which have been published in The Hill, The LA Times, Thrive Global, and elsewhere. Currently, he's involved in studies investigating exposure to harmful combustion-related air pollutants in the U.S. and abroad, as well as research related to harmful chemicals in food, soil, and consumer products. But we're not going to talk about his environmental findings. No, he has this platform to speak to the human public health catastrophe that is taking place in Gaza. In the introduction, I mentioned many sorts of grassroots kinds of activities in Shahir's portfolio, and grassroots is a really appropriate way to look at the human need unfolding across the globe from where we sit so comfortably. Shahir comes to us today from Orange. We are recording this on December 23rd. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Shahir Masri. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. Well, thank you. So first, Shahir, you have some background stemming from your Lebanese forebears that offers a useful perspective on that very compact bit of real estate east of the Mediterranean Sea and west of the Jordan River. And I'm just going to give people a little bit of perspective. Israel's square mileage is the equivalent of Los Angeles and San Diego counties. Gaza, at 141 square miles, is twice the size of Washington, D.C. So that putting that on people's sort of cartographic sort of uh, consciousness. So Shahir, tell us about your connections and your family visits before we open up the current situation. Sure. Well, on Israel's northern uh, border, Lebanon uh, also is a very small country, 
the population there actually is only about six billion. And interestingly, it happens to be the country with the largest number of refugees in the world per capita. So of those six million, about a million and a half are refugees, mostly uh, Syrian refugees, although there are almost a 200,000 Palestinian refugees. So my family, while they're from Lebanon, uh, myself, born in the United States, I think we're um, acutely aware of the you know, impact that war and conflicts have on creating refugees. Uh, most of the refugees in Lebanon are in poverty, uh, living in conditions that are, are really um, you know, poor, both in terms of public health, income, and so on. So uh, I think that foundation um, you know, has, I guess, instilled in me more of, of an awareness than I might otherwise have, uh, and an empathy towards, the, you know, again, the way that war and conflict create refugees and uh, destroy public health conditions for people who uh, would otherwise love to you know, live just like all of us uh, in peace and have good prospects for the future and for their lives. Well, let's break down the current, the local geographic and demographic features. It, it's, I think, at this point, as I keep timestamping our interview, because things are extremely changing right now. This is December 23rd, we're talking. And so about 1.9 million have been forced from their homes, according to it was yesterday's publication in the Washington Post. I don't know if you saw that. It was an interesting sort of graphic of the kind of movement from the northern to the southern port portion of Gaza. There's a lot of other outlets that have been showing that in different forms. But this is 1.9 million people in living in one half of D.C. is the beginning of describing what a catastrophe looks like. Tell us more about this what you see in terms of the public health at risk. Sure. Well, as you noted at the intro, um, you know, I'm used to studying the sort of environmental, uh, invisible environmental hazards uh, like air pollution and soil contamination and applying scientific tools to help understand the links uh, between those exposures and death and disease. In Gaza, of course, the public health crisis, or shall I say catastrophe, is much different. Uh, in Gaza, the killers are, of course, not ideologically mysterious or hidden uh, and require no uh, whatsoever scientific techniques to pinpoint. Namely, we're talking about bombs, gunfire, starvation, disease that's rampant and killing Palestinian civilians by the thousands. You noted the Washington Post piece. Uh, the latest figures the latest figures on death in Gaza is over 20,000 now. Majority women and children, about 70%. Uh, 50,000 injured. So we have a death toll of 20,000, an injury toll of uh, more than double that. And I think one of the important things to recognize for those who have been following this war, so to speak, since October 7th, this really does not look like whatsoever a a war on Hamas. This is really a war on Gaza. We've seen, as I mentioned, over 20,000 people killed, overwhelming majority civilians, overwhelming majority children and women. Uh, but this also includes, you know, over 300 medical personnel, 136 as of today, UN aid workers have been killed, mostly in bombs that have hit buildings, including UN buildings. Uh, this is the highest death toll the UN has suffered in its entire history. There have been over almost now 100 Palestinian journalists who have been targeted and killed. And evidence that's coming out suggests that these are not accidental bombings uh, whatsoever. In fact, speaking of Lebanon, just on October 13th, a Reuters journalist, Issam Abdullah, who was killed in the southern border, standing along about six other personnel 
four journalists wearing clearly marked press vests that were actually nowhere near targets. And this was actually a relatively quiet day of gun of, of shelling, uh, and they were killed in a bomb that was separated by another bomb about 30 seconds later. So there's been an investigation opened into this. Uh, but this kind of not only indiscriminate killing of civilians, but targeted killing of uh, against journalists is really unprecedented, and I think it really is just horrific to witness. And, of course, it's created a, a immense public health catastrophe, which we can get into the details of. Yes, and I'm going to take an off-ramp here with you and ask, as you're talking about these potential kinds of international war crime incidences, if the research you do in environmental investigation is somehow, are there any methods that overlap with forensics in international human rights violations? I would say that for the large part, not so much. Uh, there are similar uses in satellite imagery to, you know, obtain visuals that aid in, you know, data analysis. But that helps, I think, in the current conflict in understanding the number of buildings that have been wiped out in the bombings, the agricultural areas which have been targeted also by Israel. And we've, uh, you mentioned uh, war crimes. So Human Rights Watch is accusing Israel of uh, using starvation as a weapon of war. And part of what's embedded in that accusation is the deliberate destroying of agricultural land, which have been elucidated by the satellite imagery, um, but also bombing of bakeries, wheat mills, sanitation, water facilities, hospitals, largely in northern Gaza. There are, I should say, in northern Gaza, there are no functioning hospitals remaining. So these are all embedded in, in that accusation of war crimes, which appears to be a pretty robust accusation, given everything that we know about this situation. And it's important to also recognize that most of the water that inflows, uh, fresh water, drinking water to Gaza is controlled essentially by Israel. And this was cut after October 7th. Uh, we've seen some limited return of water to southern Gaza, but not the north. And so issues of starvation and also thirst are rampant in the area. So before we talk about those particular aspects of civil life, we shall do that shortly. But it brings to mind, Shahir, that in Gaza, there had been for many years already blockades of certain things because of the lack of clarity of whether some of those supplies were going to be used to build up the Hamas infrastructure, the paramilitary infrastructure, so that there's been a kind of sustained deprivation of the civilian population partly due to what Hamas is doing and partly due to Israeli control of Mediterranean Sea imports. There's definitely been um, a blockade on uh, resources entering Gaza for uh, quite a long time. And this is one of the reasons that Israel is uniquely poised to havoc on the population is because they do control the influx of most shipments and, you know, trucks and many routes into Gaza. So the war, although, you know, we tend to think of the word war as, uh, I think, two sides that are maybe somewhat evenly weighted, afflicting harm on one another. That's no, not, not anywhere near the case of what's happening in Gaza. We have a immense asymmetry with a mostly impoverished, starved population, you know, being starved by Israel in this case, who's also dropping these bombs and harming the uh, civilian population through military force, um, but also controlling all aspects of, of aid and resources into Gaza. So it's an immense asymmetry, which leaves an already impoverished, disenfranchised population increasingly destitute. 
For those of you who've just joined me here on Ask a Leader, my guest is Shahir Masri, air quality researcher, author, and climate change activist with some personal observations about the conditions in Gaza. We're recording this on December 23rd. So taking massive hits are the realms of providing water, food, shelter, electricity, medical supplies, which, and all, and in that, I mean, you can overlap with some of those categories, but internet, because that internet is communication, and all the things that civil society does, like, you know, running your, your business, schools, government operating, I mean, all of that is under stress. And I, I'll go back to the Washington Post graphic. It shows provisions for those things that the elements of society, civil society is talking about. For every 1,000 dwellers is one toilet. For every 5,000 dwellers is one shower. That, those are some things that, uh, that I grabbed from that. And I want you to unpack what evidence you have of this catastrophe opening up. And it, it's about to collapse here as we look at it on this day in December. That's right. And, you know, the, this been described as already having collapsed by uh, some experts. And the situation, regardless of the use of the term collapse, is one of, you know, that can only be described as horrific. Uh, the WHO has basically noted that 93% of the population in Gaza is facing crisis levels of hunger with insufficient food, high levels of mal- uh, malnutrition. One in four houses are facing, uh, quote, catastrophic conditions, experiencing an extreme lack of food and starvation, and are resorting to uh, selling off minor possessions just to obtain a simple meal in a day. This situation of hunger is expected to increase, uh, most acutely among children, pregnant and breastfeeding women, as well as older people. Breastfeeding mothers are also at a high risk. Given that they're a high risk of malnutrition, this, of course, puts their precious fetuses at risk. The zero to six months of age also, so after birth, is a very important time for development. Uh, in fact, I have a, an eight-month-old right now, so this is particularly mm. close to home. Yes. Uh, you know, I, uh, breastfeeding and being able to be adequately hydrated and fed yourself as a mother is so important to creating the, you know, the, the milk and food supply that sustains the zero to six month old child. And with well, uh, hold nutrition Sha- yes, trauma so. also interferes with lactation too. You're right. Yes. And actually there's uh, reports of women sustaining such trauma that it's also now in Gaza affecting their ability to breastfeed. So we have these sort of compounding factors that are again, putting the already most harmless parts of our population, these newborns, at a really high risk of malnutrition and starvation. And, and that's, I think, for any parent, really hard to hear. But this, again, fits right in with what's already been so hard to hear as a parent, which is over, I think it's 8,000 children have been killed in these bombings in Gaza. This should be just an outrage to the American public, and it really has been an outrage, which is why we've seen so many protests in the streets. And I've, and the injury toll, of course, is much higher. But in general, getting back to sort of public health crisis, uh, we have over 100,000 cases of diarrhea that have been reported since mid-October in Gaza. Diarrhea is something that sounds, I think, to our more privileged society as something that is minor. It comes and it goes. 
that's because we have adequate hydration. We have adequate water supply. We have backstops so that the diarrhea doesn't spread and then that's a collapse in that living being. Yes, exactly. The, The number one treatment for diarrhea is just adequate water. And this is something that is not readily available whatsoever in Gaza. And those diarrheal diseases tend to have the highest mortality rates among those under five years old. So We've got, um, again, another compounding factor, uh, low water intake and diarrheal diseases that are becoming rampant, again, over 100,000 cases. And that case rate is over 25 times higher than what was reported prior to the conflict. So this, again, getting back to the uh, Human Rights Watch accusation of using starvation as a weapon of war by the Israeli military, this is translating directly now to uh, diseases and 150,000 cases of upper respiratory infection, numerous cases of meningitis, skin rashes, scabies, lice, chicken pox. I mean, you name it. These are all skyrocketing right now in Gaza. Many have said that the death toll, which is already at 20,000 in Gaza, uh, may get much higher. uh, And uh, soon, because of infectious disease, uh, the death toll may ultimately dwarf the deaths that have been caused by uh, bombs. So we have this real uh, precipice that we're sort of dancing on in Gaza. And that is why immediate uh, humanitarian aid and a cessation of bombing uh, is critical if we care about public health and the protection of innocent civilians. So I want, while we're talking about witnessing this, that the coverage is very complicated. And you and I had quite a lengthy pre-interview discussion of how we were going to do this. And I'm going to raise for listeners my concerns about the pernicious kind of disinformation woven into coverage of what's happening in Gaza. So certain hashtags could be sort of hijacked by bad actors that want to undermine the good things that need to take place. So Shahir, please give listeners, and give me (laughs) included, What media sources or leadership do you find are unimpeachably authentic that allow us to follow and follow up as this human, this public health catastrophe accelerates? Well, I think that the mainstream media up until recently has been doing an immense disservice to innocent civilians in, uh, in Gaza by really, in some cases, in some major media outlets, failing to really talk about initially, especially in the first month, the Palestinian death toll. Uh, We saw this really quite clear in uh, some coverage. This has, of course, changed as this has become such an overwhelming uh, catastrophe for the Palestinians. Um, However, if we want to talk about useful sources of of news, uh, while we can today find some useful content in the mainstream media, by and large, we want to pay attention to those with journalists on the ground in Gaza, and then also media outlets that are not, you know, corporate. So the ones that I would recommend, um, I think Democracy Now!, which is a national public radio station, has been doing great coverage. They're based in New York City of this Gaza crisis. They've been covering this daily since October 7th. And then uh, journalists on the ground include uh, those from Al Jazeera, some of whom have been killed in, uh, in the crisis. So I think those are two important sources of information to pay attention to and to supplement, you know, the other information that we get from less direct media outlets that do not oftentimes have many personnel on the ground, especially in Gaza. So you, though, you, I, I'm going to put you in a 
position of, do you uh, sign on, though? Do you ratify my concern that disinformation will take a grain of truth out of the developments in Gaza and redirect that into some other undermining activity? I mean, that is real. And it's so it, it could be taking something from democracy now and then blowing up a whole different narrative that could make addressing this so much more difficult. You do, you you can validate my concern there. I think it depends exactly on what the concern, uh, concern is. Most of what I think has been spun in the media, sadly, has been spun against the population that's already the most disenfranchised and powerless um, and destitute, which is Palestinians. Um, in the case of Fox News, I actually did a one-month sort of, and I don't think uh, most uh, serious journalists pay attention to Fox News, but I just out of curiosity took a look at their social media profile, and I, I saw that in the first month, I don't think the death toll in Gaza, I think I concluded not once was it even reported. Wow. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't think there was even a single mention in having reviewed uh, hundreds of their posts, a, a single mention of people being killed in Gaza. That maybe there was once or twice, but this is over a one-month period when thousands upon thousands had been killed. So most of what I've seen in the media is, is sort of this kind of spinning of the issue towards you know, basically allowing more of this ongoing propagation of, of catastrophe. I think there's an asymmetry in the way that uh, the media had been covering this. In the first couple weeks of this catastrophe, when thousands and thousands of innocent civilians had been indiscriminately bombed, I was still watching, uh, you know, the news, mainstream media outlets like CNN. And in some cases, some of the primetime coverage, all you would have taken away from those primetime hours was that we had a hostage crisis. We had President Biden visiting Israel. Um, we had a lot of horrific atrocities take place on October 7th. And only about five to 10 minutes at the end of the two-hour primetime segment would you learn then that uh, over you know 5,000 civilians had been killed and, and, and uh, people were displaced uh, in the thousands in Gaza. So most of the failure in relates to media that I've seen has been one that has kind of kept uh, quiet the horrific atrocities that have been taking place on the part of the Israeli government against Palestinians and therefore allowed this propagation of atrocities to continue. Well, thank you for for all of that. But, and there there is much in that. I would like to combine the two sizable last questions because I don't know if you want to weave them together in your replies and maybe reorder them. But I would like for you to expand on, is there an end to this catastrophe? I mean, everything ends somehow, but talk about what you think could is the end to this. And where do you find, Shahir, the most impact in addressing this catastrophe in both immediate and the long-term kinds of like resettling issues? So I don't know in, if you want to take them up together or reorder the the two large topics. Yeah, so I think, um, look, I think we have to start with the very basics. The, the, the bombing that has been going on now for, I think this is the 78th day, uh, indiscriminate bombing of Gaza, it, it needs to grind to an immediate halt. Um, this is not uh, effective in targeting Hamas. In fact, one can easily imagine that this is perhaps one of the best recruitment tools for radical organizations like Hamas, namely... I think um, about that a lot. The recruitment, seeding the resentment against the enemy is 
is unimpeachably clear. Right, because, um, you know, fighters, Hamas fighters, of course, are born out of a great resentment towards being oppressed and towards what they've witnessed in you know generations past of and in their detention uh, violence. their own det- and, they were incarcerated many of them sure yeah getting incarcerated and right now and in, for instance uh, although we've talked mostly about gaza in the west bank uh simultaneously where there by the way is no hamas we've had over four thousand uh civilians detained uh many palestinians uh that have been arrested and have been uh, imprisoned in Israel are those that are being held without charge. So not only were they not found to be guilty, they were never even charged, many of them. And so many of the released prisoners that have come through the hostage exchange are some of those who, again, were never charged. Many of these are teenagers, some throwing stones, others having done virtually nothing. And so getting back to uh, a solution of so... Well, before you do... The numbers of those that have been detained in the West Bank, as you're talking about recruiting opposition in the territories surrounding Israel, but that there's also the numbers of Palestinians killed in the West Bank. What's the latest number that you have? It's in the hundreds. Is it almost a thousand? I don't know. So the, the latest figures that I've seen coming out of the West Bank, about 300 people have been killed uh, in the West Bank. Again, for your viewers, we've got two segments of Palestinian populations that are considered, uh, well, in, in the West Bank, this would be the occupied territory um, on the eastern side of Israel. 300 people have been killed. We've had raids going into uh, the West Bank. In one case, about 80 military vehicles surrounding four different hospitals, at least, from what we've seen. And 65 of these people who have been killed are are actually children, getting back to this children death toll. Aerial drone strikes have been taking place in the West Bank. We've had sniper fire. This is just, again, horrific to imagine. But in two cases, this was caught on video. CNN actually showed uh, some of this video on their social media page of, uh, in one case, an 8-year-old. In the other case, I think it was a 14-year-old shot, just killed in the street. uh, In one case, a child running away. Uh, This is, again, pretty unimaginable, I think, to most Americans, but this is what's taking place. This is what's caught on video and and is well-documented now throughout this crisis, both in Gaza and the West Bank. So, again, this also needs to halt immediately because uh, this is not contributing to any reduction in future crimes against Israel or atrocities against Israel. This is going to breed the kind of rage that is going to fuel organizations like Hamas uh, and lead to more higher risk for Israelis. So by all means, we should take it very seriously that this is taking place in Gaza, even if we care exclusively about, uh, and hopefully we don't, but if we care only exclusively about American and Israeli safety, what's happening in Gaza uh, really weakens the future prospects of peace and safety for Israeli and U.S. populations. And I'm remembering 9-11 being one example of that. So the West Bank we're implying doctrine in terms of the asymmetry of war waged in Gaza. The, the doctrine doesn't exist in the West Bank. Palestinians are being dealt with by it's kind of secular vigilantism. Right. So again, this kind of gets back to this, uh, what I pointed out earlier, that those paying close attention to what's happening can quickly recognize that this is not uh, really a war against Hamas. It really is a war against the Palestinian populations 
against culture, against women, against children, against civilian infrastructure, infrastructure that's important to sustaining the populations in those areas, like I mentioned, including sources of food, wheat mills, including uh, water treatment plants and things of that nature, including agricultural fields. In the case of the raids that have been taking place uh, in the West Bank, we saw just last week a really important, what's it's called the Freedom Theater in the West Bank, which is a really culturally important theater that's allowed Palestinians to take part in art and really given hope to many young Palestinians. Uh, we saw this theater completely ransacked, computers stolen, the offices of uh, individuals who help run the theater completely ransacked, and uh, I believe it was the manager of the theater arrested and taken away. Uh, so these are centers, and, and last week we saw a church sheltering Christians, actually, that was uh, ransacked. That's back in Gaza. That, that's a Gaza that, church. Right, and, and this is what, uh, right, um, getting back to kind of this being a, a little bit more than, a, or a lot more than a Hamas targeting, this is a cultural war as well, and this is what's called the sniper killing of two women, uh, a woman and her, I think it was her mother or her grandmother, in this Christian church sheltering uh, mostly women. This is what prompted the Pope to refer to these acts of terrorism. Uh, but of course, this isn't an isolated incident. This has been happening all around Gaza and all across the West Bank uh, as well. Uh, mostly these raids in the West Bank have been in Jenin, where, uh, as I mentioned, uh, hospitals have been surrounded, much like they were in Gaza as well. Um, so a cessation of this needs to take place immediately. And of course, uh, within that cessation or that ceasefire needs to be also on the part of Hamas, uh, the returning of hostages, because, of course, these are also innocent civilians that do not deserve to be in, in, uh, detained. So uh, we really need this cessation to be uh, on both sides, but we need it to be uh, in existence uh, immediately because this is just killing hundreds and hundreds of innocent kids and women uh, every single day and just contributing to this spread of infectious disease throughout, uh, especially Gaza. Um, so that, in my view, is the immediate step that needs to take place. Uh, most of the American population, according to polling, agrees and wants to see uh, a ceasefire and the ending of this violence. Uh, despite that, we've seen very little action on the part of uh, the White House to take those steps and condemn what's happening across Gaza. So is there an end to this catastrophe? Well, fortunately, this is actually news yesterday. The U.N. does seem to have gotten its members to uh, vote on a resolution. Basically, it's calling for repairing of critical uh, infrastructure, allowing the passage of measures that are really designed to rapidly expand and facilitate humanitarian aid to Palestinians. Um, so there was a U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire in, uh, on December 8th. Uh, the United States blocked that in their veto. On December 12th, we saw 163 countries in a general assembly vote call for a ceasefire. The United States uh, and Israel, as well as eight others, voted against that resolution. Finally, again, just yesterday, December 22nd, the U.N. Council drafted, this was after some delay uh, this week, earlier this week, um, of the U.S. not accepting the draft finally accepted this draft that the council had got to vote on, and it seems that we now have this resolution passed through the U.N. This is not calling for a sustained ceasefire, but it is at least calling for the repairing, like I said, of critical infrastructure, allowing 
humanitarian aid into Gaza in a much more meaningful way, allowing more entry points into Gaza. Um, There have historically, throughout this two-month crisis, been very few entry points into Gaza. Israeli checkpoints uh, have really slowed down the passage of trucks through prolonged inspections going into Gaza. So this resolution also calls for, it looks like they're trying to expedite this inspection process with some UN oversight as opposed to just Israeli oversight. So this is, I think, a critical step. I'm glad to see that this has finally happened. It's sad that it's taken, you know, multiple votes that have been vetoed by, you know, our, our country to get this kind of basic humanitarian, I think, necessity approved by the UN. So that's step one. And then in that resolution, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I, I believe it affirms the two-state solution that must take place. This is, of course, not agreed upon by Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, but This is something that the entire international community has long supported, this two-state solution, which we have not seen implemented. So that's uh, step two, of course, after we see uh, reparations and the rebuilding of all of the uh, civilian infrastructure and the healing of the suffering, sick, and impoverished Palestinian population. For those listening, if they have real misgivings for how they're going to read about what happened now, how they're going to think about that later, that we're talking about a rapid dismantling of a community. This is a catastrophe, the word I use so advisedly. The UN's made some maneuvers, but it doesn't operate like a paramedic. It operates like a bureaucrat. And so I don't know if you have anything for those listening that they can do to feel like they've in- immediately interjected their influence in this situation. That's the close of this interview. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. A simple UN resolution does not translate I- immediately to um, the problem being reconciled on the ground. Uh, that's step one, and now we need to see the influx of aid and the cessation of bombing. From an individual standpoint in the United States, we as Americans are uniquely poised to influence this catastrophe because the, Israel is the number one and has long been the number one uh, recipient of U.S. military aid. And the sort of proposal that Congress is making to send $14 billion more of taxpayer dollars to support what is so clearly an assault on human rights is absurd. So constituents should contact their representatives to demand a ceasefire and ensure that humanitarian aid does get moved into Gaza expeditiously. The Biden administration needs to see more pressure from citizens to call this to a halt. He's done very little to really address this and almost everything he can to prolong it, including uh, circumventing Congress, who's kind of deadlocked over this $14 billion aid bill. He's kind of he's circumvented that to get nonetheless $100 million which includes 14,000 rounds of tank fire to uh, Israel in the midst of this atrocious you know, bombing campaign. So, and then secondly, many of these programs for delivering water and, and medical aid into Gaza are tackling crises around the world and are often uh, underfunded. So there are many ways to donate to the World Food Program uh, and UN groups that are on the ground as well as groups like Doctors Without Borders who are really trying to make an impact and are on the ground in Gaza helping the population. So those two avenues, I think, are really critical. And then a sort of less direct avenue would just be to continue to share 
what's going on on the ground in Gaza. Interestingly, I think our youth community knows much more about what's going on uh, in Gaza than many of the elderly, including many of the politicians, especially people of, let's say, President Biden's age, because so much of the footage that is scarring our population here in the United States, including myself, is witnessing the graphic footage coming out of Gaza through social media, through Instagram accounts, through ways that people who are not on social media platforms are not simply going to observe. And that right when October 7th occurred, I began either on this platform and in my casual social interactions, I've been heeding the warning, though, that social media disinformation is going to be, I don't want to say viral, it's going to be, it's going to be epidemic. So I'm, as you say, follow those platforms, I say, follow them with absolute, utter critical thinking care. That's, uh, I have to say. So I know uh, you... I I agree with you. I just want to interject one quick comment. You surely can. Okay. (laughs) A lot of what I'm talking about is not opinions on social media, but um, the on the ground, very visually obvious footage of of the crisis taking place. Uh, These aren't images that are being manufactured in a studio. Uh, these are images of, of kids who are getting pulled out of rubble. And, and these kinds of images, um, I don't believe, are the kinds that are uh, probably what you're talking about that are maybe in the sphere of disinformation. These are very clear images, and they are in the hundreds, if not thousands at this point, of children, of babies getting pulled out from under concrete that are disfigured. Uh, it's just images that are, are horrific, and I think they're really affecting a lot of uh, the youth population because they're probably seeing them more than the elderly population. And that's what that's what concerns me is that there's authentic evidence, though disinformation campaigns are running pictures from Syria from years ago, and that is it looks like a Middle Eastern setting. So that's what I mean by uh, it. Sure. One has to be really sort of truthing out the sources of all those things so that that sure. there is the legitimate interpretation and legitimate follow-through in a very needy. I call it a catastrophe. I want attention there. I want for people to, to be involved, and I, so I, I, I will push back where people are, are not practicing care in following this. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's why it's increasingly important. When it comes to sharing, uh, for instance, social media, you know, look at everything you want to look at. But I think when it comes to sharing, like you said, be really critical in terms of your thinking and also share content that's being disseminated by some of your news organizations that are on the ground, because you're still going to be privy and and seeing a lot of the footage, but at least it's going through a screening process. And you can even follow some of the personnel who are on the ground who at this point have, you know, some of the doctors and medical staffers that are actually known to exist in those areas. But again, like I said, Democracy Now! has been doing a lot of extensive coverage on this issues, and much of what you need to know, uh, and in fact, some cases that might spare you from some of the worst uh, scarring content, uh, can be found on those pages, including, like I said, Al Jazeera. Uh, Reuters has done coverage as well. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, I thank you so much for all your time, Shahir, for doing this interview as the holidays uh, move move on and attentions are in so many different kinds of special realms. Thank you for giving us your time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And it's, uh, you know, sort of a, I guess, a dystopian coincidence that as we 
heading to Christmas, as uh, you've probably heard the phrase, uh, Christmas is canceled in Bethlehem where uh, Jesus was born. And that's due to the trouble that is surrounding the area and the just uh, state of the minds of those who are in that area at this moment. So thank you for the opportunity to speak and help shine a light on this really important topic. Well, thank you. My guest was Shahir Masri, air quality researcher, author, and climate change activist, giving us his personal observations about the conditions in Gaza. And we also included the West Bank, which is its own huge story. We'll be right back with a clip from an earlier interview with my next guest, cellist extraordinaire, Matt Heimovitz, with skin in this game as well. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Matt Heimovitz, world-renowned cellist, record label executive. Matt was born in Batyam, Israel, outside of Tel Aviv, a son of Romanian parents with some Ukrainian background. His family later settled in Palo Alto, California. Matt made his debut at the age of 13 as a soloist with Zubin Mehta and Israel Philharmonic. He studied at the Collegiate School in New York and at the Juilliard School with Ronald Leonard and Yo-Yo Ma. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts at Harvard University. He went on to perform with such esteemed associations as the Berlin Philharmonic, the New York Philharmonic with Zuban Mehta, the English Chamber Orchestra with Daniel Bernboin, the Boston Symphony with Leonard Slotkin, and the Orchestra Symphonique de Montréal with Kent Nagano. His latest endeavor, the Primavera Project, encompasses 81 new commissions from a diverse intersection of North American communities and has been featured in the most recent, the 59th Venice Biennale Arte. Making his first recording at 17 with the Chicago Symphony, Matt's recording career encompasses more than 30 years of award-winning work on Deutsche Grammophon, Oxingale Records, and the Pentatoni Oxingale Series. His honors include the Trailblazer Award from the American Music Center, the Avery Fisher Career Grant, the Grand Prix du Disque, and the Primero Internazionale Academia Cignana. The solo cello recital being a Heimowitz trademark, Matt's closest professional companion is his Venetian cello made in 1710 by Matteo Gofriler. He splits his time between McGill University in Montreal and the art colony that is Marfa, Texas. He comes to us today from Pomona, California, where, as I mentioned before, he's an artist in residence. We are recording this on November 3rd. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Matt Heimovitz. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you. I just gave a thumbnail sketch of your remarkable career today. Matt, I'd like to zero in mainly on the following, your interesting career path out of the standard classical and into the non-traditional projects, the legacy of the cello as an instrument of descent and taking stock of trauma. So let's begin with those other choices that you made out of your traditional career path 
of a modern classical musician to exploring the non-standard classical and non-classical repertoire. Well, as you mentioned, I, I started my career in a very traditional way, playing with major orchestras and conductors, and worked, you know, with Zubin Mehta and Daniel Barnboim and played in the in the major concert halls. And at a certain point, I looked out in the into the audience and I realized that my generation was not really engaging with what I was doing. And as any citizen of the world that wants to be productive and feel relevant, I started to think about ways that I could reach my generation and bring my passion for the kind of music that I wanted to play and listen to, to, to this new public. And that's, that's what led me initially to thinking that why don't I try and play in venues that are not really traditionally classical, that the, you know, rock clubs, jazz clubs, coffee houses, places that are open to music of all kinds, but don't necessarily have classical as part of the regular diet. And that led me to some interest in, you know, in 2000, I just recorded the Bach cello suites and, and, um, so I started in Iron Horse, a very well-known coffee house in, in Western Massachusetts, and then went uh, shortly after in New York. I was thinking, you know, where where is the venue that you would least likely find a cellist? And and I came up with uh, CBGB, now defunct punk palace, and they had never had a classical musician, but the the fellow who who ran that place was a, you know, he was, I think he was a violist who graduated from Juilliard and, and he, you know, he ended up becoming famous for, for presenting punk bands at CBGB, but that's, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he just had, had just never presented a classical artist before. So uh, my, my early experiments with that were just really energizing and, you know, it was really incredible to to get that kind of energy and, and uh, you know, reach a whole different audience and just bring Bach at that time to, to these venues. So it sounds like on both sides of the equation that it's energizing, opening up more creative kinds of powers of yours and opening up the, the clientele on the other side of the equation. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it was the first time that I had reached audiences that didn't necessarily listen to classical music. They were more indie rock audiences or jazz lovers or just different different genres. And they were sitting side by side with classical aficionados who were always curious about these venues but had no reason to go to these venues. So, um, so it really brought together, for me, for the first time, you know, different backgrounds, different ages, different... Uh, music interests and and uh, just that that creates a certain chemistry and a certain energy and it was really for me in terms of my career kind of a renaissance mm -hmm. a, a feeling of renewal and and uh, really kind of going back to the early days when I you know I, I played Zubimeta would call and say there's a cancellation I'm on tour with the Israel Philharmonic we need you in Atlanta can you can you fly over this weekend and play? You know that 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 kind of um, that was very exciting. You know when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, and I had the same feeling with these uh, alternative spaces. And then 
you know, after doing that with Bach for a couple of years, I realized it's such a great venue for um, for living composers and the idea that the classical tradition is a living, breathing genre of music and it's not a museum piece. It's very much current and, and they're really extraordinary composers writing new works. And so I thought this was a good opportunity to to bring the contemporary world into into these spaces. And as I was thinking about that, you know, kind of celebrating living American composers, we were hit with 9-11 and the tragedy of, of that experience. And um, so, so I immediately sort of, well, my, my immediate reaction was kind of being paralyzed and, you know, like everyone else, you wonder what, what is the point of art and music in, in a world where life can be taken so randomly in split second. And then that evolved to, you know, I want to commission memorials for this, for this tragedy. And, and so I commissioned two composers at that time to write new works and incorporated that into my celebration of American music and living American composers and making my arrangement of Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner from and Woodstock. That is a treat. I I did get to hear that, and it's uh, and I actually mentioned that to a patron last night at Cal Poly Pomona. Be sure to check this out because, you know, that people don't know, people didn't prepare necessarily. It's amazing, and I, I don't know if people are. Do they ask you to play that? Or is that a request in some setting? <laughs> I mean, I don't it think... is. I haven't, I haven't played it in a while. Because you did that um, live. That was not in a studio. Yeah, that that recording is live at CBGB. And I had never given a political speech in my life. But at the time, you know, we we went through this range of emotions and it, our feelings evolved as that administration, it was the Bush administration at the time, started talking about going to war with Iraq. And then, you know, many of us couldn't understand why we were going into Iraq. There, And if you spoke out against it, you were considered unpatriotic. And so the parallels with the Vietnam War and the, you know, that, that time decades before and what Jimi Hendrix, the statement that he was making, you know, this idea of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and that that, that is more powerful than any military might. And that that's a very powerful, you know, aspect of this, country that that you know we need to celebrate and protect and um just be able to uh to express ourselves in that in that way and and uh i'd always found that statement incredibly powerful but i wasn't sure how i was going to translate that to the cello and i kept telling everybody that i was going to do it and then and then uh really it was the night before <laughs> cbgb that I, I was like i better i better get to work on this arrangement and I was amazed how quickly it just fell into place. The the instrument just really channeled all the all the feedback and all the sort of the timbre and and distortion of what what Jimmy did decades before. And I it, it was kind of uh, just a real serendipitous kind of moment, you know, where it just it, it all came together. Really, it took. You know, an hour or two hours 
and I had the arrangement. And yes, the next day I premiered it in at CBGB in New York City and we recorded it live for that album for Anthem. So you clearly were channeling the virtuoso versatility of Jimi Hendrix. It's it's all all the texture. It's it's phenomenal. And so I just it's a little maybe more pedestrian compared to this, but you finished your contractual obligations with Deutsche Grammophon before establishing your founding your own label, Oxingale Record. Is there something where did that fit into the timeline of you moving into these non traditional spaces? It all was happening at the same time. I, I had recorded for Deutsche Grammophon for 10 years, and I started to have my own ideas of what I wanted to record and when I wanted to record and how I wanted to record. And so, yeah, we, we founded, with together with Luna Pearl Wolf, we founded Oxingale Records and Productions back in 2000, and we started with the Bach Chow Suites, and Anthem mm-hmm. was an early album on the label, and now we've been at it for the last, uh almost 25 years so we we've done a range of things you know project sort of project-based albums and the latest recording that we put out together in cooperation with the pentatone label which is based in holland we put out hartman cello concerto a first recording of that ukrainian composer's work that a work that hasn't been played in 70 years and has, was never recorded. Uh, you know, first premiered by the Boston Symphony and the legendary cellist Paul Tortillier. And, and uh, you know, so it, it's projects like that that we, you know, that we're able to put out that we feel very grateful to be able to contribute in that way and, and not be beholden to any kind of pressures and sort of marketing priorities you know of, of some of the major labels and i mean the whole industry has changed so drastically so we were just at the early cusp of what is now a little bit more you know the, the way of the future well let's put a pin in the dehartman reference we'll get back to that my guest for those of you who've just joined us is matt heimovitz grammy nominated remarkable virtuoso of a cellist record label executive talking to us as he's participating and gracing the region with his talents at Cal Poly Pomona and continues to build what we're going to talk about in a bit, the Primavera Project. Well, you've made some amazing choices about with your compositions and your collaborations and your venues as they are, they raise awareness about upheaval. The Euromaidan, the uprising in Ukraine in 2014, Hurricane Katrina, we talked already about your rendering the Star Spangled Banner, and then the pieces you, you premiered at Cal Poly. Trauma is not in short supply. So I'm going to try to bring along many thoughts into a question about the cello, how it's so well suited as a dissenting instrument that provides solace. What is it in the DNA of your instrument that performers like Vedran Smalovich, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, he's a Bosnian, that during the siege in Sarajevo, he played mm-hmm. atop the rubble, Yo-Yo Ma, anywhere, including the Day of Action in 2019 on the Rio Grande, and then Yo-Yo Ma played March of 2022 outside the Russian embassy, and even Rostropovich often uh, elevated democratic values and the uh, Armenian earthquake 
I had an impromptu performance. What is it about the cello and cello players that put themselves out there to wail and bring the the world public to to wail and and find solace amidst these catastrophes? Yeah, and let's not forget public assaults who played at the UN and who took such a strong stance against you know the fascists in Spain. Yes. And, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean just. Goes on and on, and of course, Rosa College, as you say, and and Yo Yo. But yeah, there's something I, I don't know. I it, it, um, it's partly the instrument, partly the uh, the characters that are attracted to that <laughs> instrument. Something about the combination. I think it's you know it's a very anthropomorphic instrument. It looks like a human body. We talk about it like a human body. Um, the neck of the instrument, the the body, the, the range of the instrument is very very human in range, and it is a voice. It can do a, a lot of. It can also be very chameleon-like, and and uh, because of all the overtones and the low overtones of the instrument, you can take away overtones, and so you could you you know you can transform it into an electric guitar, or a flute, or a trumpet, or uh, guitar, but whatever instrument. So I think for composers, they you know they are really in, into this instrument that can do all kinds of different things. And yeah, so I think I think there's that human quality. And um, I don't know. I I think something about it's just fairly easy to transport. And <laughs> so you all you need is the instrument you just show up somewhere take it out and start playing so it's as you say it can be comforting and provide solace but it it also can be an instrument of protest and i've certainly experienced all kinds of situations where i've just run the gamut of emotions with with that instrument and i do feel i've always felt like you know the cello is is my voice I wouldn't want to hear me sing necessarily. And so that, you know, playing the instrument, that's, that is the ideal sound that I have in, in my head. And there's something about the repertoire also with the Bach cello suites as a kind of foundation and this kind of universal book in some ways, like a scripture for us. And we can spend a lifetime trying to decipher what it means and all the emotions that are in it and how to communicate those. To an audience, so I feel very fortunate that there's a, lot, a lineage <laughs> for my instrument of, you know, not only wonderful musicians and artists, but humanitarians and human beings that really use their power for music for good and for change and to just to, you know, do their part in, in bringing peace to the world. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, my guest will be Anne Christian with Local Public Works, Public Advocacy, and Public Office Aspirations. Next up is SoCal Nueva with Past Forward. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Happy, happy, holidays on.
The extended portion of this interview will be available on askaleader.com.